But our new series that we're in is called Find Your Voice. And as we transition into the sermon here, let me just, in case that you're a visitor with us, the point of this series is there are things as a church that we need to learn how to talk about. We want to learn how to talk about hot topics in our culture with grace and with truth. With grace and with truth. This is, this is a, a humble way of saying that we need to do a better job talking about these topics. It's not training on how to stand on your soapbox and shout. It's, it's, a, it's not a proud thing we're doing. It's a humble thing we're doing. We're saying we could be doing a much better job talking about these issues with grace and with truth. If we don't work on it, we're either going to swing one way and get silent or we're going to swing the other way and get obnoxious. And somewhere in between silent and obnoxious, we're all going to find our voice on these tough issues. We've already covered the issue of Islam. What does, uh, what does the Bible say? What's our voice on Islam and terrorism? So those sermons are online. You can find them on our app. Uh, we're transitioning now into God and government. Big week for our government coming up. I hope you're going to go and vote. Um, the election is this week, and so perfect timing for us to be finding our voice on God and government. What roles should the government play in the lives of uh, citizens? What should it do? What shouldn't it do? I'll never forget hearing about what happened in 1984 when a seventh grader named Andy Smith wrote to the President of the United States, Ronald Reagan, with a request. He said, Dear President Reagan, today my mother declared my bedroom a disaster area. I would like to request federal funds to hire a crew to clean up my room. <laughs> Reagan wrote him back and said, Dear Andy, I'm sorry to be so late in answering your letter, but as you know, I've been in China and found your letter here upon my return. Your application for disaster relief has been duly noted. But I must point out one technical problem. The authority declaring the disaster is supposed to make the request. In this case, your mother. Your situation appears to be natural. I'm sure your mother was fully justified in proclaiming your room a disaster. Therefore, you are in an excellent position to launch a volunteer program to go along with the more than 3,000 already underway in our nation. Congratulations. Give your best to my mother. Sincerely, President Reagan. <laughs> what should the government do? What shouldn't the government do? Uh, so many questions we can have. And... More importantly, what should I say, what shouldn't I say about government? Government is important. Government choices affect your life every day. When you're on the expressway, following or violating the speed limit, road conditions, safety requirements for every building you walk into, the air you breathe, the type of light bulb that is on in the building, Everything down to how much water your toilet flushes. The government has had a say in that part of your world. Lauren and I recently bought a dishwasher, and we were like, why does it take so long to wash the dishes? And I, I Googled it, and it turns out that the government passed a new law recently regulating how dishwashers have to work, how much water they can use, how much energy they can use. So they all have had to go to a two-hour cycle. Two hours to get the dishes done. You're not imagining things, and the dishwasher's not bad. That was a government-initiated thing, and uh, right there in our kitchen, that happened because of the government. So government matters and affects you on a daily basis, and our involvement in government matters. Uh, that's what we're talking about today. Let's pray, because I'd rather you be up here talking about this and not me. <laughs> Tough topic today. So I'm going to pray and humble myself before the Lord before we go any further. 
Father, thank you for giving us your word, your wisdom, and I pray that as we look into your book that you would give us clear guidance, both on the black and white issues of government and on the gray areas, uh, issues dictated and governed by conscience. We pray, Lord, that you would give us clarity, and we do pray that you would, in a sovereign, heavenly way, have your hand, your guiding hand upon the future of our nation. We feel, O oh Lord, like we are small, insignificant parts of a much larger force, uh, Lord, in our government, and we pray that it would be ultimately your hand that guides, guards the people of the United States. Our hope is in you, our trust is in you, our eyes are on you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to go to several verses today. This is a uh, topical message. We usually go to one passage and stay there. This is different, all right? Uh, so you don't have to chase the verses around. They'll all be projected. But if I had to give you um, four things when it comes to God and government finding your voice, number one, you can jot this down. We must expect our government to serve God's purposes. Uh, it's right, it's imperative, it's important that we expect our government to serve God's purposes. Too many Christians are apathetic. They don't care about government. Uh, too many Christians are ignorant. They don't know what their government is doing. And many Christians, even if they care and even if they know, simply retreat and they think it's none of our business and we just shouldn't be involved. Uh, my contention is we must expect our government to serve God's purposes. We can't retreat to apathy or ignorance or simply be uninvolved. Why? Well, Psalm 2, 10 to 11 is a great place to start. It says this, now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. The kings of the earth are beckoned with a warning to serve our Lord. They are beckoned with a warning by the holy word of God to fear our Lord. The prophets in the Old Testament give us a great example of God's opinions of the surrounding nations. Israel was a theocracy. They were, they were governed by God. He was their king and their president. That wasn't true of the nations around them. Still, he would send his prophets to go and yell at them when they were getting off track. So, be careful in your theology. It's not like, well, you know, government is government, and you know, how can we possibly expect them to know God's word or to abide by it? The word of the Lord is shouting out to all of the kings of the earth, saying, Fear the Lord, O kings of the world, the rulers of the peoples. If God's word is issuing to them a call to rejoice with trembling, why would we not echo that same voice? Why would we not have great expectations of our government to know the Holy Lord and to fear Him and to worship Him? Um, in John 19, 11, Jesus had a chance to talk to Pontius Pilate, a representative of a Roman secular government that was acting as an overlord of Israel. Israel was not free. God took that freedom away from them after they violated the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, so Israel was under Roman oppressive rule. Now, Jesus could have been ignorant, apathetic, or uninvolved. He could have said, this is a secular government. What business do I have of telling them how to run their empire? Uh, you know, they just need to do their thing, and I'm going to let God do his thing. Well, what did Jesus say? Jesus answered Pontius Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Listen to that. 
He's telling the man who is going to be legally responsible for the most sinfully heinous act in all of human history, you're using God's authority to do this. You would have no authority if it wasn't given to you from above. We see here in the most wicked act of any secular government that they are still using authority given to them from God to act out their will. Therefore, our government is under the authority of God Almighty. They are using His power, for better or for worse, and it's important that we understand that. After His resurrection, Jesus said that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus, therefore, possesses all, uh, all authority over all authority. He is the authority of everyone who rules in any way, shape, or form on the earth. They are using, uh, they, are, they are operating under his jurisdiction. Whether they know it or not, whether they like it or not, it's the authority of God that they are using or abusing. In Romans 13, 1, it tells that we're supposed to see government this way. It says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Every authority is from God, and all of the governments are instituted by God. This means God is not passively watching the governments form and fall. He is actively establishing them, and in some cases, tearing them down. He is not passive, he is active. That also means that the government is ultimately responsible and accountable to God for their actions, not the voters, God. So what does God expect from the governments that he establishes who are using and abusing his authority. Well, at bare minimum, if you pick out pieces from the Old Testament and the New, God expects governments to punish evil and promote good. He expects them to punish evil. Uh, he has handed them a sword, um, and they bear the sword to be his instruments of judgment on evildoers. They have that power from God. Uh, they also are supposed to promote good. They are supposed to promote the good, the virtuous, what's helpful for building up society. They're supposed to be all in on promoting that. Uh, next, they're also supposed to seek the good of the people, not of the government. Time and again in the Old Testament, leaders and rulers who are stuffing their faces filled with the bounty of government while neglecting the people are condemned. Governments that are taking their power to serve themselves are, are uh, condemned by many prophets in the Old Testament. Um, and so they're supposed to seek the good of the people, not the government. Generally speaking, also, governments are supposed to safeguard human liberty. Uh, they are supposed to take care of the freedoms of people, not take away the freedoms of people. Also, governments are supposed to care for the poor and the vulnerable, not take advantage of, of people who would fall into those classes. And finally, governments are supposed to be held accountable. Um, there were many ways, shapes, and forms. God has given governments feedback in the Bible on how they're doing. He would call out everything at the, from the local level. He would call out condemnations on cities for how poorly they're doing to, to regions, to countries, and at times he just lets the whole world have it. Okay, So governments of the earth are supposed to be held accountable. Now let's be careful in what we think and believe here. Because God expects the government to serve his purposes, but God doesn't expect the government to do 
what other institutions are meant to do. So, for example, God established the family. He did it for many reasons. One of the reasons is the rearing of children. Um, God doesn't expect the government to do what he instituted the family to do. Uh, the government is not supposed to do everything for God. They are not supposed to put themselves in charge of the rearing of children. That's the family's job. Uh, God, God also does not expect the government to do what the church is supposed to do. God instituted the church to make disciples, to spread the faith, um, to, to have some measure of authority and responsibility over the spiritual lives of the people under that roof. He does not expect the government to do that. He expects the church to do that. What we're seeing here is God has established circles of authority in your life. It starts in the home where God has given primary spiritual authority to the father, to the husband, to lead his family well. That authority comes from God. They don't earn it. They are just given it. And they can do bad or good with it, but God has given authority to the man to lead his home. If that fails, then the children and um, the wife has an appeal to the church. And she can go to the church leaders and say, you know, this is going on in my home and I need help. And the church leaders have authority from God over you, whether you like it or not. He's given it to them to speak into your life and to give counsel and to hold you accountable. If that fails and laws are being broken in the home, or if in the church laws are being broken and God's people are saying, our leadership is failing us, God has given you an appeal to the secular government to say what's going on in our church is corrupt and criminal and we want you to take care of it. So everyone is under authority, and that authority starts in the home, moves to the church, and then moves to the world. It's a problem when one uh, circle of authority tries to take over another. The church tries to impose legalistic rules on the home, right? Or the church tries to reach into government and steer it. Or the government tries to reach into the church and take over. All those things are bad because it's violating things God has set in motion. Perhaps you remember hearing about the 18th Amendment in uh, American history when the government tried to remove all alcohol from the country, all right? In the name of, you know, we're a religious country and we just don't want any more drinking anywhere in the whole country. And they passed it and it didn't go so well because that's not what the government is supposed to do. The government is not supposed to compel people to live Christian lives, all right? That's even hyper-biblical. The Bible doesn't say, get all the liquor out of your country. I mean, it's like totally a legalistic thing. Our government tried to do, and it flopped, which is why it was later repealed in the 21st Amendment. Um, the founders of our government set things up well. They, uh, in the First Amendment, prohibited government from establishing a government-run church. Please hear me clearly. The, our government is not allowed to establish a government-run church. So just like you could go to the Department of Motor Vehicles, some countries have a department of church. It's a state church, um, and it's happened in many countries that we've uh, worked in and partnered in. Um, what that means is your tax dollars are going to the church. The church leaders are viewed as government employees. Uh, this is in many ways what's gone on in Romania. And as we've tried to get churches up and running there, the government discriminates which church is a state church that gets state funding, which ministers can perform state duties like funerals and weddings, and then other churches are marginalized. All right? If you search history, it's a disaster when the government runs the church. An absolute disaster when the government runs the church. And it's great that our founding fathers said, not here. That is the Establishment Clause. 
But that also says that the government is supposed to allow people to have free exercise of their religion, which means they don't establish a church and they don't stop church from happening. In the 70s, the Supreme Court started to change the tone, the mood, the actions of the government, and uh, they have, they've given themselves the right, without voter consent, to start prohibiting religious things in the government. They see it as their job to stop Christmas things from happening in government buildings, to remove the Ten Commandments. That's a recent thing, all right? That's a recent thing, and it came about through the courts without the votes of the people. So just understand what the Establishment Clause is and what it isn't. Um, and what we should expect and shouldn't expect from our government. Um, it's not our government's job to compel people to live Christian lives. We should never expect them to do that. But the moral principles found in God's word are the only sure foundation for liberty and law anywhere in the world. We should expect our government to build its understanding of virtue and freedom on God's word. And, and right away, you might be like, well, I mean, what's our book versus others? Why, you know what? You, know, you don't even have to go there because it's crystal clear how our, our country was established. Maybe if you lived in another country, you could live, you know, lead an uprising about how God's word is the foundation. But when you start talking about God's word being the foundation of law and government in our world, you're just bringing America back to her birthday. You look on her birth certificates, and God, the Christian God, is everywhere. At our first presidential inauguration, General Washington had his right hand on a Bible as he read the oath of office. At the end, he said, so help me, God, and he kissed the Bible. All right? He kissed the Bible. So without shame, we have nothing to apologize for when we expect our government to found its sense of virtue and law and liberty on God's word. Um, we can expect that, and we can expect God, our government and every government to serve God's purposes. This is based on the authority of God's word, the authority of God's son, the founding documents of our country. We should treat our government as God's thing, and we should expect our government to run God's way. It's right to expect that. That's point number one. Isn't that enough? <laughs> but there's more. <laughs> number two. We must honor God with our response to our government. You're not going to like this point because there's no such thing as a perfect government. So every government, everybody say every government, every government. will fail to serve God's purposes perfectly. Um, in fact, every authority figure in your life, your father, your mother, your boss, your pastor will fall short of God's perfect standard um, of an authority figure. Now, too often what people do with that is they start making deals about when they will and when they won't honor and respect an authority figure, as if the authority figure needs to earn it first, then they'll have my obedience. That's, that's dishonoring to God, because the truth is there is no such thing as a, an authority figure in your life who deserves your obedience and respect. It is undeserved. You are giving them undeserved uh, obedience, compliance, and respect because God demands it of you. If you don't get that settled in your heart, you will live this life fighting authority everywhere you go. And if you are constantly in a battle with the authority figures in your life, you're at war with God. All right? You're at war with God, and he will trouble you every step of the way until you finally humble yourself before authority figures who don't deserve it. 
Okay, you've got to understand how God has set up authority. If you're still nursing unforgiveness in your heart towards your parents, God is going to drill down until it's out. All right? If you still have pain from the past and people who have abused their authority and therefore you're not going to give anybody the eye, you're either going to be really cold and silent toward them or you're going to you know, let them know to their face what you think. You're at war with God. If you've got a problem with authority ongoingly, you've got a problem with God because there's no perfect government. 1 Peter 2, 13 to 14 says this. It says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, to praise those who do good. It's for the Lord's sake that we are subject to every human authority. Uh, we have to submit to our government as an expression of our faith in God. Romans 13, 2 also says this, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. If we break the law, we will suffer, and God will condone our suffering because we are supposed to be peaceable and submissive to the laws of the land. You know, we can't say that we'll submit to the government when they rise up to our standards of character or whatever. You know, there's always the bumper sticker out there, right? Not my president! Uh, yeah, yeah, he is. God said so. You can't say, because well, I didn't vote for that candidate, I don't have to listen to that candidate, respect that candidate. That's not the way the Bible works. We have to give undeserved respect to the governing authorities. Do you know this was written, these verses about respecting the government being subject to the emperor were written in a time, the church lived, when the emperor claimed to be a god. And, and there were people who expected some form of worship to be given to this God. So, whatever your feelings about President Obama, if he today announced that he has just figured out that he is a God. And there's now a Department of Worship of President Obama, and they will be sending you memos on how you can properly and appropriately send your worship to this deity who rules your land. You would still need to honor and submit to that government. That's how bad it was for the early church. Still, there was a blanket statement issue. Respect the government, pay your taxes, submit to the laws of the land, because God has established it, and he's going to hold them accountable. So be careful with your own heart. Don't insist that authority be perfect before you submit to it. And know that God gives countries their rulers. He gives good rulers. He gives bad rulers. Sometimes he gives bad rulers to punish bad countries. But all of the rulers are fully under his jurisdiction. Our responsibility is to obey and submit. That means we pay our taxes. That means we follow the laws to the best of our ability. That means God cares what we say and what we think about our elected officials. Thinking right now, what did I post on Facebook for the past eight years. It's all coming up in judgment. This is going to be one of the, this generation has one of the best document, best documented historical records in, you know, in all of humanity. I mean, the angels aren't going to even have to work to condemn people, you know, from about 2002 on. I mean, it's just like, pull up the emails, pull up the Twitter feed, pull up the Facebook, and off you go. <laughs> you kept the records for us. 
How are you doing it relating to your government in a way that glorifies God? I'm going to ask that again because it was a really convicting question for me this week. How are you doing it relating to your government in a way that glorifies God? We have to be careful because if we develop an ongoing problem with authority, we will have a problem with God. I felt convicted because sometimes my complaints against our government are like, vehicle sticker, sticker every year. I gotta go ahead and pay this. And then I gotta get a sticker on my plate. What's with all the stickers? They're just milking me for extra money, you know? I'll complain, I'll gripe in my heart, I'll put it off kind of in a protest, you know? And uh, it's not right. I mean, it reveals this underlying problem that I have in my heart with authority. If we're honest, we all have it, all right? We don't like when somebody has power to tell us what to do. We just don't like it. Um, but I do love my country. Um, my father and my grandfather were both in the armed forces. My grandfather served in World War II. I have an un- a deeply rooted understanding of what it's cost for us to enjoy the freedoms that we have. I get that. Sometimes I complain and moan and I, you know, and I gripe, but deep down in my heart, I do love my country. I would die for my country. I do love it. I will still love it no matter who gets elected this week. I think we have something special compared to most people who have ever lived. I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Uh, are you grateful for the liberty that you enjoy? You do have one of the best forms of government throughout history. Um, I did a little research this week. There's a site called Freedom House that tracks how people are governed, their liberties and their freedoms all around the world. They put out an annual report. Here's one of their slides that they uh, came up with this year. Um, what it shows is it shows what portion of the world enjoys the freedoms comparable to you and me. And, and that green uh, would represent people in the world who have, you know, like about as much freedom and liberty as you have, about as much freedom and liberty uh, as I have. And what that shows is there's only about 40% of the global population enjoys freedom like you and me. Okay, only about 40%. And 36% of the glo- global population are not free. They do what their government says. They have no power to talk back. They are under the thumb and they're not getting out anytime soon. And then there's a great number of people who are somewhere in the middle. And you might feel like, yeah, but things are on the rise, right? I mean, like we're heading in the right direction, right? No, we are not. In the past 10 years, 105 countries have seen a decline in liberty. 105 countries are less free now than they were 10 years ago. All right? Freedom is not guaranteed. It's not automatic. It is not on the rise globally. And we are incredibly blessed to have the freedoms that we enjoy. Incredibly blessed. We should wake up every morning singing the Proud to be an American song. I mean, at the top of our lungs, if we truly understand how other people are living. Especially with what's going on with the refugee crisis now. Here's a picture of people who are running for their lives from their countries because they can't stand it anymore. There's, two, there's uh, 267,000 people from Syria who have requested asylum in another country. Um, there's 16,000 from, you know, one, there's 14,000 from Iran, 36,000 from Pakistan. There's 120,000 people from Afghanistan who want out. They need out. Altogether, you add it up, and over 620,000 people are trying to storm into the European Union because they don't have freedom and they desperately want it. All right? I don't know about you, but I'm glad I'm not waking up to that problem. All right? We're going to wake up to a problem one way or another. 
coming this week. I'm glad it's not that. We should really, really, really be grateful for what God has blessed us with, and we should truly guard our hearts and our tongues in how we talk about our government. All right, so we have to honor God with our response to government. We have to expect our government to serve God's purposes. Number three, we must seek to significantly influence our government. So again, I'm just hammering away at that we can't be apathetic, we can't be ignorant, we can't retreat. We should significantly influence our government. Why? Well, if you look at the Old Testament examples of people who sought to significantly impact their government, it's a long list. You have Joseph, who rose up out of the prison in Egypt to become second in command, and he changed the course of the nation and uh, established a way for, the, for Israel to come into being. You think of Moses, who stood nose to nose with the Pharaoh and said, let my people go. He was a political deliverer. You think of Daniel, who had to stand his ground and pray, even though prayer was outlawed. He was thrown into a lion's den. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had political authority, and they stood their ground, and they were thrown into a fiery furnace for it. You think of Esther, whose own husband was in charge of the uh, large empire back then, and one of the other um, government officials issued an order to kill every Jewish person on the planet. His name was Haman. He didn't know that the queen was, was a Jew. Whoops. So then she comes out and says, I, I, I'm Jewish. And then the man who had issued the execution order for the queen was hung on his own gallows. And she saved the nation. You think of Nehemiah, cupbearer to the king, who went before the king and asked to rebuild Jerusalem, and he was, or Israel, the temple. He was given permission to go back and rebuild the wall. These are people who modeled what it means to influence by example and to hold rulers accountable to God's revealed will. They held their rulers accountable to God's revealed will. In the New Testament, we know John the Baptist, he was in jail, and he was holding the king accountable because he uh, you know, divorced somebody and married somebody, his brother's wife, he shouldn't even be married to her. And he lost his head because of it. He was holding his government accountable to moral standards. Paul, when he was out on missionary journeys, would from time to time remind those who had just arrested him that he was a Roman citizen. And there were times when he was beaten unfairly. So he held the Roman government uh, accountable to their own laws. Hey, I, I'm a citizen and I'm not supposed to be beaten like I was just beaten. And then they were like, oh, you're a citizen? We didn't know. He's like, yeah, well, you got to figure it out because there's laws and I expect you to keep them. So we have examples of people who influence their government through example and through holding their rulers accountable to God's revealed will. Um, the first and primary way we influence our government is through prayer. It says in 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 2, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So again, we're not passively taking what they give us. We are prayerfully promoting peace, freedom, and expression of our faith. We're active. We're not passive. I got to say, if I could give myself a report card of how well I've been praying for our government, for our officials, uh, you know, over the past seven years, I, I mean, like D minus, I'm doing a terrible job at this. Um, as a church, I think we're getting an F. I, I don't know that we've done this very well. So I feel like this is a huge area for growth that we can work on. But we should seek to pray 
for our government. Um, Jeremiah 29.7 says this <clears throat> of those who are in exile. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. We're engaging in prayer. We want things to be better. We want the uh, bar of moral expectations to never be higher. We want, we want kings and those in authority, governors, to wake up to the living God and to fear Him. That's God's will. The influence of the church and the Bible on governments throughout history can fill the pages of, of a library of books. When you look at the church's history on society, the church, somebody has said, has acted like the immune system for civilization. The immune system. It's through the church and its influence, it's promoted individual rights of men, women, and children, rights for the unborn. Through the church and the Bible, um, the act of human sacrifice has been combated. It's still being fought in places like Uganda. Um, there is, because of the influence of the Bible and the church, uh, we have formed the world's thinking on divorce, polygamy, the burning of widows in India, slavery, substance abuse, and the overall understanding that the government needs to be held accountable has come from the church and the Bible. Christians through the church have enriched society everywhere they've gone by establishing hospitals and universities for education and wellness of everybody. Um, if you subtract the Bible, if you subtract the church from human history, you would not recognize the world tomorrow morning. You would not recognize the world tomorrow morning. Church has had such a major influence. And we need to continue to see ourselves as God's way to significantly influence the world and the government. Now, of course, the obvious way for you to influence your government is to vote. So I've put together a little tip sheet. These are Pastor Ryan's advice on voting. These are not in your bulletin, but you can write them down if you'd like. I have to admit, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. I'm not going to tell you who I'm going to vote for, or if I'm even going to vote. I'm not going to tell you. I'm just going to leave you hanging. You'll find out in heaven. You can't disagree with me then either, because it's a perfect place, so there's no fighting. <laughs> I think I can say with confidence that nobody's happy about the candidates who are being put forward. Um, I like what one person wrote. His name is PJ O'Rourke. And uh, he said this, I'm endorsing Hillary and all her lies and all her empty promises. She's wrong about absolutely everything, but she is the second worst thing that could happen to America. <laughs> I love that phrase. I feel like many of us are wondering if we should vote for the second worst thing that could happen to America. <laughs> the, um, you might think that everybody thinks like you. You might think, well, everybody's, of course, going to vote for my candidate, or, or Christians aren't going to vote. They can't vote for either of those people. Uh, you would be wrong to think that there is any agreement, even in the church, on this election. It is one of the most divisive elections uh, in history. E, uh, there was a poll, three polls put out by Reuters, Lifeway, and Barna. They all said the same thing. Evangelical Christians are divided over who they're voting for. Um, so 45% of even when I say evangelical Christians, you understand I mean people like you in this room, all right? I'm not talking about every Christian even. I'm just talking about Christians like you who love Jesus and sing the praise songs and believe their Bible so you can't turn them into demons. All right? 
Evangelical Christians are divided. 45% are planning to vote for Trump. 37% are planning to vote for Hillary. 15% are planning to vote third party or nobody. 45, 37, 15. You're sitting right around people who are going to vote for the other person or nobody at all. Or somebody. They're in this room. So you've got a big problem. If you think, well, I'm just, I'm not going to be in a small group with somebody who votes for that person. Yes, you is. Yes, you is. Well, then I'm leaving. See you later. All right. You won't get your way in everybody's hearts. All right. You got to live with the fact that you have a pastor on the stage who has voted for Republican candidates for president, Democratic presidents for candidate, not voted for anybody, even governors and on below. I voted for Republicans. I voted for Democrats. And so you got to deal with it. No one is going to vote exactly like you. You've got to be okay with it. The nation is divided. What's even more interesting is when they ask the pro-Trump people, how many of you are actually voting for Trump Christians? How many of you are actually voting against Hillary? 41% of them said, oh, we're just voting against Hillary. We don't like Trump. We're just voting against her. So even the vote is divided. They asked the people who are pro-Hillary, okay, are you really voting for Hillary or are you voting against Trump? 32% of them are like, we can't stand her, but he's worse. So even the people who are voting one way are divided. All right, it's all messed up. You can write that down in your bulletin. It's all messed up. All of it. So now I'm going to give you my voting tips. Okay, <laughs> here we go. My goal is to make all of you equally angry. Just give me the thumbs up when I've gotten there. So uh, write this down. Vote even if you don't vote for every office. Uh, I think based on what I've just said that we need to significantly influence our government, they need to see the evangelical Christian group is voting. Uh, I think voting is a, a stronger protest than not voting. If you sit home and the evangelical vote goes down, it, it did with Romney, if the evangelical vote goes down, um, they won't care about you as much. You're irrelevant, Okay. <laughs> It's voting that gives you the influence. So I think even if you're like, I'm not voting for anybody for president, get out there and still cast your vote. Honestly, regardless of what party you're in, I think one of the best things that can happen, however it happens, is that Illinois becomes a swing state again. All right? I want them to come to town and woo me. I want them here. And I want to be listening with a report card. Is that all you got to say? Next. You know? And... Uh, don't feel defeated whether you are one way or another. Don't feel overconfident if you're one way or another. You know, it was only in like the 90s where Illinois didn't become a swings. Before that, it did go back and forth. And so uh, I think it would be healthy if it got back there. So vote because your individual number does matter. Next, be informed and know what comes in the box with your candidate. Um, be informed. Uh, Whatever you believe about the two candidates, you have, to, you have to read the platforms, okay? I've done it. Read the Democratic platform. Read the Republican platform. They are not the same. There are two very different visions for the future of this country. Whatever way you vote, you need to know what comes in the box on topics like the Supreme Court, sanctity of life, defense, the economy. You should know. You should not ignorantly go into the poll and be like, whatever, I hate that person, so I'm just... You got to know what comes in the box with your vote. So be informed. Um, vote even if you don't vote for every office. Be informed and know what comes in the box with your choice. Next, don't judge others based on their vote. Okay? Uh, the church is divided, as I've already said. Uh, church leaders are divided. You know, John Piper is telling people, don't vote. Don't vote for president. 
You know, you're going to sit if you vote for president. Uh, John MacArthur is telling everybody to vote for Trump for his policies. Um, the Gospel Coalition's pastor, the BD Anabwili, is saying vote for Hillary. Max Licato is saying vote for Hillary. The leaders are divided. All right? So uh, my, this is a, um, this is an exhortation, all right? For our church, on our ministry teams, and our small groups, uh, your authority to decide who to vote for stops right here. You only get to tell you who you're going to vote for. You have no right or authority to tell anyone else who to vote for or to judge how they voted. None. And our small group leaders are going to be on notice that if anyone makes a comment in a small group, like, hey, anybody who votes for that person can't be a Christian, you will get a phone call, all right? I'm telling you now, because we will not let this divide us as a church, and the Bible says in gray areas, you are subject to your own conscience, and you have no authority to police the conscience of anybody else around you. So whatever you believe, God bless you. But you only have a right to your belief. You have no rights to tell anyone else how to think or how to believe. You just have to leave that between them and the Lord. All right? Are you hearing me? Are you feeling me? Have I achieved clarity? Give me the thumbs up. Good. So don't judge others based on their votes. And, um, and then have a clear conscience in this gray area. Whatever you decide to do, I would just say the Bible challenges you in a gray area to have a clear conscience. If you can't have a clear conscience, that should be... the Arguing with your conscience is like arguing with your smoke detector, okay? It, there's not that much smoke. I didn't burn dinner that badly. I mean, why are you yelling at me, okay? If you're arguing with your conscience, you have to be subject to your conscience. So uh, I hope those were helpful. Pastor Ryan's advice on voting. You can take that with you into the voting booth if you'd like. All right, let's move on. Sorry, I'm not accepting comments from the audience. <laughs> This is not a town hall meeting. All right, number three, we seek to influence our government. Number four, write this down. We must stand firm when government challenges our faith. So we'll close out with this. I've, I've intentionally done a whole lot to build up the idea of government in your eyes, to build up the accountability we have to government, but I want to close out by saying this. We must stand firm when government challenges our faith. It will happen, and you will have to make a choice between honoring God or honoring your government, and God always has to win. Government doesn't define right and wrong. You know that, right? Just because it's legal in some counties of Nevada uh, to have prostitutes, just because it's legal doesn't mean it's right. Something legal doesn't mean something's right. And just because something is illegal, like in Saudi Arabia, it's illegal to become a Christian, that doesn't make it wrong. They can't make it wrong to convert to Christ because they're a government. Um, government doesn't give you your morals. God's word gives you your morals. So when they collide, you have to always choose to honor the Lord. We have an example of this in Acts chapter 4, uh, verse 18, where the Sanhedrin, this would be a, if you can imagine this, a combination between the Supreme Court and the church and the, the um, Congress, in a way, all in one. Isn't that a horrifying thought? <laughs> if the Supreme Court and the Congress and the church all called you into a hearing. <laughs> the Sanhedrin was a wicked, religious, political organization. They called the disciples in, and it says in verse 18, they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. 
But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. So they just looked him right in the eyes and they said, you judge for yourself if it's right, if we honor the Lord, but you're not going to stop us. You will not stop us. You cannot stop us. That's boldness. And um, now more than ever, Christians, you will be pushed and pressed and threatened and harassed by people in the government, whether it's on the school board or all the way up to the presidency or the Supreme Court. There's really a cultural war going on right now. We'll talk about that more in the future as we deal with sanctity of life and especially the LGBT um, uh, issue in the culture that's happening. But if you're a doctor, if you're a teacher, if you're a pharmacist, if you're a baker, if you're a government employee, if you work for a university, if you're an athlete, your faith in Jesus will cost you something soon. It might cost you a lot. It might cost you a lot. You have to be ready right here, right now. The government will not tell me how to honor my Lord. That's settled in my soul. I will let go of everything rather than dishonor my Lord. I will lose it all gladly for my king. And no government will ever threaten me out of walking by faith in my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He will hold them accountable. I'm accountable to him. That's settled now. I'm not going to be up all night the night before. Which way am I going to go? I don't know what to do. They're telling Done in my heart now. It will never get me off of faith in my Lord Jesus Christ. Settle that now because the time is coming. A great closing quote I would say is this. A guy named Juan Sanchez from the Gospel Coalition said this. Let's not deceive ourselves into thinking that if we just get the right candidate in office, we can have heaven on earth. There's only one heavenly king, and his rule is not subject to a vote. Let's pray to that king right now.